0: Welcome to Global Decolonization Initiative Podcast. I am your host, Tanya Rodriguez, and I'm here with
1: Courtney Jessup Nichols, podcast creator of 40AF. Hi, Courtney. How are you doing? Hi, Tanya. So honored to be here today with you. Thank
0: you for being here. I really appreciate it. We will be discussing a few topics today. First, we have the Global Uprising Report. And our topic today is decolonizing the white woman mind. Mm. Mm. We'll be <laughs> we'll be bringing you the GDI shout out of the week, the Cocotazo of the week, and our philanthropy corner. So stay tuned because it's about to get real. Global Uprising Report, Colombia, Bogota, November twenty first, twenty nineteen to present. This past Friday, February 7th, 2020, Colombian students fighting back against police repression during clashes that broke out at the National University of Colombia, where they were protesting against the right-wing Duque government's neoliberal finance pension and labor reforms. British, Columbia, Canada. The Wet'suwet'en Nation's Gitmaden clan and the Unastot'en Nation is rising up and shutting Canada down. According to the Toronto Sun, Gitmaden member Jen Wickham said hereditary chiefs had gathered near the site of the BC camp on Tuesday. The Gitsmaden set up a gate in December in support of an anti-pipeline camp that members of the Unistotin, another Wet'suwet'en clan, established years ago. Wickham, who has fielded calls from India and the United Kingdom about the pipeline resistance, has said it's been surreal to see the international response. She says she believes the issue is gaining attention now because the Gitmaden has dispelled the myth that it's only individuals from one clan opposing the project. Quote, I think now that the Khitmedan has stepped up and said, no, this is a nation-based issue. This is about sovereignty, and it's really sinking in, she said. The CBC reports on February 7, 2020, the Mohawk nation, in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en nation, has taken over the railways with blocking freight and passenger trains from cross-country passages. Via Rail canceled dozens of trains between Toronto, Montreal and Ottawa after protesters blocked a railway in support of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation in B.C. and its standoff with the RCMP. As one protester stated, according to the CBC, quote, Our position is that they are our brethren. We have a relationship with them and we support them in protecting their territory. A $6 billion, 670-kilometer coastal gas-link pipeline is at the center of the controversy. Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs assert authority over 22,000 square kilometers of the nation's traditional territory an area recognized as unceded by the Supreme Court of Canada in a 1997 decision. Opponents of the pipeline point out that B.C. has passed legislation to implement the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which says, quote, Indigenous peoples shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories, end quote. Members of the Tayandiaga Mohawk Territory have said they'll stop train traffic until the Mounties leave Wet'suwet'en Territory, where a court order recently cleared the way for work on the coastal gas link pipeline. According to a spokesperson from the rail lines, quote, as the situation progresses, more trains will be canceled, end quote. Protests in support of the Wet'suwet'en Nation and against the pipeline are currently in progress Canada-wide, with more protests being planned across Canada next week. So far, the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, have arrested a reported 14 protesters and are in full riot gear on un- ceded Wet'suwet'en territory terrorizing protesters with the show of force that is akin to Standing Rock in 2016. According to the Unistotten Nation, there is much outrage over the use of excessive force by the RCMP, including the unnecessary use of heavily armed technical teams deployed by helicopters to surround GitmoDen camp at 44 kilometers, use of snipers, and deployment of canine 9 units. We know that in January 2019, RCMP were authorized to use genocidal lethal force, arrest children and grandparents, and apprehend Wet'suwet'en children in response to our peaceful presence on our lands. Germany. February 6, 2020. The newly elected prime minister of the German state of Thüringen has stepped down after a broad show of resistance with thousands hitting the streets of Germany to protest the historic alliance between the far-right AFD party and the liberal FDP party, which propelled Thomas Kimmerich to power. France. Thousands upon thousands of people have taken to the streets of Paris and other French cities as nationwide strikes against Macron's neoliberal pension reforms enters its sixty something day. The protests there have been ongoing. Palestine, which began uprising this past January 28th and is ongoing today. Palestinians have been protesting the Israeli security forces' heavy-handed tactics in putting down Palestinian protests against the U.S.-Israeli peace plan that was announced at the White House on January 28th. Greece began rising up this week on February 5th, 2020, to protest against the inhumane living conditions on the island of Lesbos. This ends our weekly global uprising report, which brings us to the topic of our show, Decolonizing the White Woman Mind, which is such a big unpacking, we made it into a two-part series. Wow, we're really, really happy that you're here, Courtney, and bringing in your wisdom. Uh, your your podcast Forty AF is awesome, and how you're uh, approaching these issues from a white woman perspective, which is so much needed uh, these days uh, for the white women to rise up and absolutely. Stoked that you're here and able to bring that to us today.
1: Well, thank you so much, Tanya. It's really nice that you say that because often when you're really actively trying to decolonize your mind, you're trying to learn from others who have suffered at the hands i mean i I represent the villain in the story, right so um, the It's nice. It feels good to be wanted in this space because I try so hard to just listen and sit and learn. That um, it it feels nice to know that uh, that you want me there. So thank you. And I got, I have a friend who is a woman of color. This weekend, she looked at me and she said, "I love you, but I'm tired. Mm. It is time for you and other middle aged white women, which I am, to do the work." that I've been doing my whole life. And I said, you got it. I'm going to do everything I can.
0: Wow. And that's inspired you to make a transition in your podcast, has it not? I mean, that amongst other things.
1: Amongst GDI, I definitely uh, have spent the last, I've spent the last two years after being very fortunate to live in Arlington, Virginia, around some really – intellectually just brilliant people doing great work for racism. I joined a equity diversity inclusion committee at our school that mm-hmm. was 90% Caucasian. Wow. Um, it's a public school and it, yeah, it was, it was pretty eerie. I walked in cause my husband's in the Navy. So you move around and you just kind of, you know, bloom where you're planted. Mm-hmm. But I walked into the school and I thought this isn't right. This is a public school near the city. What's happening. Yeah. And I met friends that were really struggling. Their kids weren't really included in the curriculum. And so they asked me to join this committee. And through really listening to them and putting all the pieces together for the last 42 years, I mean, I finally heard the message. It's quite embarrassing. I'm not ashamed. I have to say it, right? I have to be honest with everyone and myself that it's embarrassing that it took this long and this... Um, real personal connection to people Mm. to see that even though, and we've talked about this a little Mm. bit, but even though I'm a nice person, (laughs) I'm not doing enough. I know you just don't see it. I'm telling you it's um, it's. And then I moved from DC to the Fort Worth, Texas area and have an even more personal connection with uh, children in the neighborhood that are my friend, my son's friends, and the mom is my only friend here, mm. and they are um, African American kids, and they get treated badly. I mean, mm. I see our neighbor across the street said the n word to me, just to me. He's not; he's a mm. white guy, and then three houses down. Uh, there 's a guy who his, honks his horn only if my friend 's children are outside, not my own, and then even farther down the street so it 's really i think d c was great because I saw really smart people doing really great things, and that was kind of the brains of the operation you know and then moving here, I feel like i 'm back in the heart of america and i 'm seeing that racism really exists because in d c you just don 't see it everybody because it 's what it 's very worldly and everybody learn you know is, is educated and um, in different cultures and different countries, and then here it's very much just Texas. <laughs> so that has. I'm I'm glad that I'm here because I'm I'm glad that I'm seeing that it's racism is still really alive and well and deep in the South.
0: Right. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's it's good that you're seeing it, but man, it is a it's rough. To uh, be confronted with the reality of its existence and its emboldened strength by um, the current administration uh, bringing in that level of security for racists to be overt in ways that were not acceptable just 10 years ago. Um,
1: Well, and I've talked to a lot of my friends about this. I agree with you 100%. I think that I I think that it was um, easy for, and I'm just going to be honest, Mm -hmm. right? I don't like that I'm saying these words. I don't like that I didn't, you know, it's not. I don't think it's consciously, but it's from my training Mm -hmm. of being a white person in this country that I did not See that it was still so, you know, still happening. I mean, you hear stories on the news and all that, but the president doing what he's done has definitely um, opened my eyes again to the fact that all those people still very much exist. Mm-hmm. And they're being emboldened, their ability now to say, oh, yeah, I'm racist, not a problem has, I think, strengthened my resolve and under and, and made me understand that I've got a lot of... I need to do more. I need to be active. I need to be actively anti-racist. I need to do whatever I can because when I look at the eyes of my friend's children, mm. and I know, and I look at any man of color any woman of color and i know from the research that i've done that they are two and a half times more likely to be shot and killed by the police just by the color of their skin i know that and i had to learn that because of what happened in 2016 because Mm. of the confederate flag becoming a big thing again right Right. it really it took me I, i think that i was like oh well I live in this beautiful city where everybody loves to live and it's global and all the countries are represented and nobody cares, you know, what anybody looks like. And then, but not caring what someone looks like, not caring if your neighbor is different than you is actually damaging to those people. Um, right. And that I've recognized now.
0: Wow. That's so awesome. That's, that's huge growth because a lot of people do use the color blindness um, as a way to exonerate them from being racist. And, you know, different things that uh, that I've seen specifically white women do uh, to exonerate them from being racist or to uh, derail the conversation when their racism or their unconscious bias is being challenged. And something that... Um, I heard you mention earlier that I'm a good person. When when a white woman says I'm a good person, you don't know me. What does that really mean? <laughs> I mean, for, <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, we know what it really means,
1: but um, right. if because there is a code, you know, from my perspective, whenever when I felt that way, mm-hmm. I thought to me it meant. Um, so because I'm not racist, there's not a problem. And I don't think that I really knew that. That's what it meant. Right? Because I'm not racist, the I, I wasn't connecting with racists, even though I was essentially trained to be one. Wow. Which in my school, I was talking to a gentleman I met this weekend, and we were we were both born in the south and we both had similar upbringings so we had you know financial privilege as well as uh, racial privilege and i said do you remember do you remember being taught like what were you taught what what, what do you remember in school mm-hmm. and we both remembered the war of northern aggression we both remembered heritage not hate and because because we were separated societally by anyone that didn't look like us, we were taught, obviously incorrectly, that we were better than everyone else because of the color of our skin. Because look at us. We were at the country club. We were at these, you know, the fanciest restaurants in town. And, and it's not that anyone sat me down and said, you're white, so you're better. But when you grow up as a child like that, what do you, what's your takeaway and then you hear people say things – I did hear people say things like, well, speaking of the – where I grew up, it's very much a um, – it's a white and a black city. At least it really was at the time. It didn't – there's not a whole lot of ethnic diversity outside you of that. You grew up in
0: North Carolina, um, which is the – I sure which did. Which is the, the – I mean, it is the <laughs> – it, there is no shame in the racism
1: game over here. There is none. yeah. None. and when you're younger and when you're at least from my perspective when i was younger mm. as a white person when the only people of color that i knew were the people that worked at the country club or you know some capacity uh did services for my grandfather or you know something like that you don't you don't think about it right and it's 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 hard like i'm saying this not because I have to be real here. I have to be honest. I have to be honest with the racism that was ingrained into my development. Because if I don't, if I shy away from it and say, I'm a nice person, back away. Don't talk. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of them. Mm. Then, then I allow myself to pretend like it's not my responsibility. And it is my responsibility. It's my responsibility to decolonize my own mind as much as it is to talk to people that look like me. And help them do the same.
0: Right. Because it's the representation I mean, that's why we say representation matters, because if your only exposure to people of color has been at a service level and never a managerial level or a owner level, then um, that definitely plants seeds to look at uh, people of color in a way that they're only meant to be of service to whiteness.
1: Yeah. And when you're a kid and your grandmother's white, your grandfather's white, and your parents are white, and your friends are white, and your cousins, everybody's white, it, it doesn't it doesn't sink in that that's not right. Mm. You don't realize that, no, in fact, uh, the reason that the people of color aren't at the board, you know, in the boardroom um, is not because of their effort, because that's certainly what I was told. Well, you know, what do you hear? The the May the best candidate win right. or the best candidate get the job. Right. Well, how can you ever be the best candidate in my hometown if you have the if you don't have access to the same level of education um, and or if, financial resources right. or if any, that I yeah, do.
0: Or if any resume that has an apostrophe with a, with a person's uh, name that has an apostrophe and it automatically gets thrown away.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, you can't even. I was talking to a friend mm-hmm. of mine who her name is could be kind of it's not real. It's like Courtney. Mm-hmm. Well, Courtney's. Sounds very, very white, but I do know people that are named Courtney. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but her name was kind of like Courtney, where it, it didn't really set a tone for anything. She said, but her cousin's name um, was hyphenated. And because of that hyphenation, she's like, my cousin has the same level of education, same level of everything, but cannot get a job because she can't even get a phone interview. Right. And that's... Two people that look the same in this country. And just because of that name, that's done it. Wow. Wow.
0: That is frustrating. It's, you know, it's frustrating for us to experience. And it's got to be frustrating for somebody that whose eyes are open to it. And, you know, the the feeling of helplessness. And so, you know, doing what you can to bring awareness to more people is so vital um, especially people that may not uh recognize how how vitally important. I mean, right now, it's just, it is life or death. We've got it we've got children in detention centers. You know, I can imagine mm-hmm. if all the white women in this country stood up and waged war against the children being in those detention centers. Those attention centers would cages. shut down in like hours within hours. But, you know, it doesn't so th- affect interesting. Right? It doesn't it mm-hmm. doesn't affect the white women personally. So well, then mm-hmm. it must not either be really happening or it's not as bad as people say it is, right?
1: Right. No, I agree with you. Uh I think I was talking to somebody about this, this weekend, mm-hmm. and I really, um, I, I am trying to talk to white people about racism as much as possible. And it's, anytime you even say the word racism, you should see, I'm sure you've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. The faces, <laughs> everybody goes, like the whole bar went silent <laughs> when I brought it up. <laughs> it was the Super Bowl, And I promise you, everybody went, what? And I'm like, nope, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. This is happening, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone said, "Why don't white women stand up for them? Why don't they stand up more? Why don't they? You know, where are the white women at the table?" Wow, yeah. And our society, the way you're you're brought up, you're brought up to be a wife and a mother. So essentially, the minute you become married, your in your individual worth is stripped away into these other jobs. Mm. And I think that, in particular, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be people that hate to hear me say this but it's really not uh, and i don't care um because it's true you become you become a side piece you become an extension of the white man wow and so you support him almost blindly you you someone said well why don't um it's almost like a codependency the reason that white women have never, we've been, you know, we're, we're women, mm-hmm. right? Like we're, we can't go out at night in places like that we would be smart about things, but we've never been attempted to be wiped out like every other person by white men. Um, now I happen to come from a place of love of white men. I'm married to one I'm raising two, right? I believe in people's hearts and souls. And I think that we can, if we can open up people's eyes, then we can make change. Mm. And so I believe in that because that is my father and my grandfather and my cousins. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like these are my people. This is what I, this is, this is my family. And I can't deny my family, but I can try to help them. Right. Uh, And I've already seen that. I've seen that in my sister. I've seen that she's joined an equity, diversity, inclusion committee at her school. Um, Yeah, right? Like, that was really neat. And she said that it's because of my podcast and because of these conversations. So that's that's the kind of thing that we have to do. And being an extension of someone else leads you blindly down their path. So we... But if we look at white women and we talk to them, if I talk Mm -hmm. to them, if you talk to them, if we look at them like mothers, it's a mom. Okay, mom, how do you have to walk? Like I I have to walk my brown skin babysitter. He's 16 years old. He's a wonderful child. I have to walk him four houses away to go home at night. I have to walk him home because I don't, because of those reasons that I expressed of the guy that lives four houses down, the one at the end of the street, Mm -hmm. the one across the street. I'm He's not safe in this neighborhood. He would be tried as an adult. He would be treated as an adult, and he is a sixteen-year-old child. And when I've said that to my friends, they're like, "Oh, well, I think all children should be." This is my southern accent coming out. You know, I gotta, I gotta play the part, right, Tanya? Uh, well. All children should be walked home. No child is safe. I'm like, stop. Don't even, don't even say that. My, my 11-year-old could walk four houses home at 10 o'clock at night and be safer than my 16-year-old brown-skinned babysitter. Wow. Yeah. And when I, when I really witnessed that, when I came back to this area and really witnessed that, Tanya, I... I Um, And then I found your Facebook group, Mm. and then I found some more, and then I listened, and I heard, and then I talked to my friends on a more deeper level. I'm like, like, hey, I hope it doesn't feel uncomfortable, but do you mind talking to me about this? And they've really been, and I've gotten books, and uh, White Fragility was a really big resource. I think that all white people should read that. Mm. Um, And American Prison by Shane Bauer, that was a really super eye-opening book about you know what we've done since quote unquote the end of the civil war mm. um you know it's really not over. We just right. put everybody in prison right um amendment and yeah, and then even now, the biggest thing i'm in that I'm seeing now that people are kind of standing up is the cannabis trade mm yeah yeah that's that is such a hypocrisy
0: it's it's mind. Oh, it's insane. I mean, it really is. It's um, yeah. I mean, the the five the five brothers in Colorado really, really revealed that discrepancy um, when they, when they became multimillionaires in the beginning of it, while there are still people uh, getting arrested, you know, BIPOC getting arrested in the same mm-hmm. town. Before even attempting it and um, mm-hmm. attempting to grow personally mm-hmm. you know <laughs> so I mean it, it's it's you know when that when that gets called to awareness to a point where there's nowhere to run it's
1: gonna be revolutionary that will be big I mean I think the mayor of Chicago said don't even plan on coming in here to to white cannabis. Um, owners, mm-hmm. business owners, so unless you have a person of color as part, unless you're partnered up with someone that else, because smart. they they see it. And then there's another town in Evanston, Indiana mm-hmm. or Illinois, Illinois, um, that is actually all the tax revenue that they're getting from cannabis sales is going towards a program for repara- reparations for their African American community in their see, town. That's what's up. So right there, there are yeah. S- that's- yeah, there's small stuff happening yeah. but I think it needs to be brought to larger attention because mm-hmm. you know, whenever I say something like, Hey, where'd you get that uh where'd you get that gummy from? And like, Oh, isn't it great? I'm like, It's absolutely great, but what about eighty years of you know, Unlawful incarceration of people of color because of the same thing that you're consuming right now on a random Tuesday. Right. Uh, you know, and I know that's not where you wanted no, to go I with mean, this. I, <laughs> mean I mean,
0: that is a good, I mean, right now there's three children in the state of Texas that aren't allowed to graduate. Uh, three young people that are in the state that are not allowed to graduate unless they cut their hair.
1: Unless they cut their hair three mm-hmm. mm-hmm. children they're children they're children that are you know, being well, told young that because, because they're graduating out
0: of high yeah. school so you know they're you're still a they're kid they're young <laughs> black children that have gone through 12 years of education they're kicking butt in in the world they're they're good kids that don't get into trouble they don't do drugs they don't do anything like that the three of them i think it's um One, you know, one young woman and two young men, I think, are being um, held to that account. While there's children, white children that have dreads that aren't held to that same standard. So that's, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be looked at when uh, balancing the inequality Uh, of how people Mm -hmm. are looked and viewed and placed. You know, like what you were saying, you know, all children need to be protected, but that's not bringing Mm -hmm. into awareness that children of color need a little bit of extra bubble wrap around them. Yeah. (laughs) Because... Bulletproof bubble wrap. Bulletproof bubble wrap because of the reality of how uh young uh b i p o c children are looked at and um they're not you know looked at as children you know mm-hmm. they're not you know sixteen years old the they don't they, even they don't the the young man isn't even placed on a sixteen year old black child it's sixteen year old it's, it's a it's a it's a black man at sixteen years old yep you know, nine years I, old.
1: You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yep. They're not. They're not. They're not looked at as children. And and then their color at that point is not. You know, it, it's not. Oh, it's because they did something wrong. It's because they were in the wrong place at the right time. Wrong time. Nope. It's just because of how they looked. Right. And we could go. I mean, standards of beauty. Um, You know, talking about, like, looking differently than what is – has – what white systemic racism has done Mm -hmm. is made my friends feel like they're not beautiful in their own natural bodies. I mean, I know that we all have body issues, which is lame, and we're women, hopefully, you know, we're working on that, body positivity and stuff like that. But when you – anything – okay, so here's the transition – from the podcast of 40AF. 40AF mm. was really fun. It was really fun. And I enjoyed it. And I got a lot out of it. And I learned a lot about what I was doing and how, what I wanted to talk about. But I would have like an episode on relationships. And then I would have an episode on LBGTQ. And then I had a three-part series on ending racism. And so it was very mm. confusing to anybody that would pull in and say, 40AF, it sounds like you're just going to talk about being 40 and having a great time. Mm through groups like yours, Mm -hmm. through um, our conversations, through conversations with my friends, I I really, you all have said it loud and clear. 40 AF is, well, it's cute and it has a nice little branding package. It's not what's important in this world. And I cannot, I can, it's heartbreaking that it took me 42 years to really, really get it. It um, makes me sad that, I, that it took personal experience with a family to really get mm. it. Um, but when you are in an all-white world, you just don't see the disparity. You don't see it, and nobody's talking to you about it. Right. No one is saying, look out there. And so I have an opportunity because as my friend, so I have a friend who said I was, I was telling her that I was kind of grossed out that, you know, I, I was going to try to talk to white people about racism and that they might listen to me where she's been talking to white people about racism for 15 years and nobody's listening to her. Mm. And she said that it's scientifically, scientifically proven that we are more likely to listen to people that look like us. Mm-hmm. And it was that moment that I said, well, then, Okay. I don't have, I have a choice. Uh, We always have, as white people in particular, we always have choices. We can choose to turn the other cheek and pretend like it's not happening, or we can choose to listen to brilliant, wonderful, pained, scared, beautiful humans Mm. that are saying, we aren't lying to you. This isn't made up. I know that you've lived in North Carolina in some little economic bubble, but this is real. Mm. And if you're a mom, if you really are this good person, mm. then prove it. Mm. Prove it by talking to other people that look like you yeah, so that I, we I can mean, collectively like see it. One of
0: the things that um I've often called for and and, and continue to call in is for white women to handle your people. It's like, hey white women, mm-hmm. handle your people because they're, you know, the, the white women seem to not listen to BIPOC or you know, even if if I'm standing in front of a white woman and speaking eloquently to her um, you know, of, of something benign and my my white husband is standing next to me, she won't understand what I'm saying and he has to repeat it so she can understand it. So, I mean, this is something that happens on, the, you know, at least once a week. And so it's something that is noticeable. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of those things where it's like, you know, when it happens to you, uh, what do you do? You know? And so, um, I, I want to find out what was the trigger? Like, what was the, what was the thing that happened that like woke you up to, you know, oh my God, I've been, I've been raised in this construct and, you know, or, oh my God, like what happened? Was it uh, a, a multiple, a, you know, were there, uh, there are multiple things that kind of happened so that you can, that, that like brought yeah. you onto the journey or was it like one major thing that catalyzed the whole realization of uh, growing up white centric and the harm of not having that inclusivity as you're, um, you know, a- along on your path?
1: Sure. Yeah. I feel like it was like a 20 year buildup. Wow. Up. wow. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's yep. awesome. which is why again <laughs> it's also it's also disturbing, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly yeah. like it bothers me. It bothers yeah. me. Um uh because I've, I have okay, so uh I went, you know, I, I small super small town. Um 100% I went to a private school. It was all white. Every every social event, every anything I went to was always white. And I didn't. You don't see it. You just. You just don't. I want to say that, that you do, but you don't. You don't see it as a problem because everyone you love and that you respect isn't telling you something's wrong with this, hmm. right? So you're a child. You're you're born. You're not born a racist. You're developed into racism because you're born a kid, a baby. A baby is is inherently good. Hmm. I believe that across the board, and then, you know it's melded into something else. So you don't see it. And so you don't think to address it and you just kind of go on your merry way. And then I went to a very large, um, public university in North Carolina state university. And that was my first exposure to anyone that didn't look like me. And so I started to sort of seek these people out. And if you, (laughs) I have all these You can't ever see them because of what I'm doing in them, but um, Mm. all my pictures from college, I'm with people that don't look like Mm. me because I really wanted, I really, I'm like, wow, this is like a whole new world. I've never been exposed to this. I never even, I never had a friend come over that wasn't white. I never had a sleepover at someone's house that wasn't white. I never had a date that wasn't white, right? Like everything was white and that's just how it was, that was expected, that was accepted and approved of my society, so when I went to college, and I 'm like, "Okay, wait a second, look at all these other humans that are gracious enough to not judge me as the villain right away because i'm i 'm southern blonde, you know <laughs> I, I look the part, uh, and they started exposing me, so when I, I told you this story, but I think it's <laughs> I made another person laugh, so I, so clearly it's um. <laughs> um I had a small Confederate flag on my wall in college. And I say small because I'm still largely embarrassed by it, but it was small. And my friend who was um, African-American came into my dorm room after four months. I mean, we were hanging out. We were buddies. We were hanging out. Probably He lived on my hall. Uh, and finally, he came in and he said, I got to tell you, that makes me really uncomfortable. Mm. And it was the first time that anybody had ever gave me that perspective because I always thought it was heritage, not hate. I thought that it was part of my... uh, upbringing. I just, I just didn't know. I just didn't think Mm. about it. And I was naive because i had never really suffered. I mean, yes, I suffered. uh, Life is hard, but I didn't suffer at all to the degree of anyone else. So I never knew that suffering existed and and that that would do that to him. So I I immediately took it down and threw it away. And um, that was the start. But then Mm. life went on I didn't do anything. I didn't actively go after racists or that flag. I would see it, and I had a different perspective now, but I was still safe in its existence. Wow. And it didn't—I didn't think beyond my existence. So I then got married and—well, uh, that's no, not not right away, but I moved to Florida Um, Jacksonville, which is Northeast Florida, Mm -hmm. but very much like Southern Georgia, as far as culturally goes. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely a lot of racism, a lot of things happening there. Um, again, not affected by Mm -hmm. it. And again, almost predominantly back into a white world, um, with my career. And so I, that was like another seven year wait, waiting period. And then Mm -hmm. I got married and moved to Hawaii because my husband's in the Navy Mm -hmm. And at that time, that's when I started to see other cultures and I started to see how colonization had really affected people because I was very fortunate to be allowed in the space of, um, some Hawaiian people Mm -hmm. and they were very, I worked in construction, which is like the best field ever to get to know real people and I just love it so Mm -hmm. much, but they taught me things and they talked to me about what it was like. Cause at that time, Hawaii had been a state for about 50 years mm-hmm. and I didn't even know that five white men came over to Hawaii and imprisoned their queen yeah. and took the islands. Right. You don't know that. You certainly don't hear that in American history. Um, right. Right. So I didn't know. And so I'm, I'm now an adult and I'm hearing this narrative. And then the Navy moved us to Corpus Christi, Texas, which is, a, um, it's like right. It's really close to the American Mexican border. Mm-hmm. So, excuse me, the U.S. and Mexican border. So, um, I got to see another group of another culture and and talk to people who, um, who had to flee daily death threats. And I'm like, well, that's nothing like my town in North Carolina. You know, mm-hmm. you just I never thought about daily phone calls saying, if you don't give me money, I'm going to kill your family. That's never happened to me. Mm. And so it gave me another perspective. I still didn't do anything. Wow. And I moved. I know still didn't do anything Uh, because it just, I was in my own existence. It wasn't until my children were a little older, so they don't need you as much. My realization of what Society was doing my move to DC. Meeting int, me, meeting super uh r- people that were not afraid to tell me to go suck an egg. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, in the full. nicest of ways. But yeah, yeah, this was this. East Coast City. This full. was a friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my friend, who this is when it really planted the seed. So this was like five, six years ago. Mm. Um, my friend, yeah, five or six years ago, I we were talking to that equity, diversity, and inclusion committee, and she said, um, I said something about it being age appropriate education because we we're talking about adding uh, racism talks into the curriculum, mm. and she very kindly did not hit me across the face. But she very, (laughs) she, because I, I, once she said it, I'm like, oh God, you're absolutely right. She said, I have to tell you, that's I'll I'll never forget this. And I actually saw her last Friday and gave her a big hug. She, she didn't even really know how powerful, how powerful this was to me. But she looked at me and said, that is a trigger for me. And I'm like, why? And she said, because a child of color doesn't get an age appropriate conversation. They know about race at a very young yep. age, and I went, oh, okay. So we started that equity, diversity, and inclusion committee, and then the podcast Forty AF got started through there, and then moving back to Texas, seeing racism up close and personal. Um, having traveled the South, we to get here this summer, Birmingham, mm. uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Mm. In Jackson, Mississippi, I got off the, air, I got off the uh, elevator and on the front page news of the Clarion Ledger was um, good old boys and good old gals get together for a redneck gathering or something like that. And I went, oh, mm. no, mm. I'm back. Wow. In, right? I'm back wow. into that white world. Yeah. I still, but Tanya, I still, I can exist in that space without fear and to know that is what did it and then meeting children and seeing children i just that was it and so we're changing we're changing the name we're changing the format we want to focus and try to help white people see what needs to be seen um i do hope people listen i think we're still going to have fun conversations but uh are you ready for the new name yeah what is it it is going to be courtney in common Hmm. So Courtney in common, we are going to talk about our commonalities because what I really want white people to see is that we are, we have something in common. Even if you don't look the same, you're still parenting. You're still tired when your two-year-old won't sleep at night. You're still struggling to you know, raise kids that are good citizens. There's all those things we have in common but what's different is that the system was built for me to succeed and for all of my friends that don't look like me to fail. So would that be
0: a good I love the name. I mean that is really awesome, but that do you think that that would be a good way to uh, unpack white privilege? I mean by by yes. bringing in the commonalities because a lot of Uh, You know, I've I've been in I don't even know how many, you know, countless conversations with white people about uh, white privilege. And the default to that is uh, economic imbalance. So um, Mm -hmm. the default is, well, I grew up poor, so uh, I'm not I don't have I don't have that white privilege that you speak of but the white gets dropped out and privilege gets replaced Mm -hmm. so i mean Mm -hmm. i think that once the white comes out of the white privilege it seems to be easier for uh, people that are not ready unwilling um or, or or willingly unwilling uh to see it for what it is which is privilege based in whiteness and not uh, economic disparities
1: absolutely i think that um poverty is the great equalizer in people's minds mm. it it because it dramatically increases someone's struggle and uh, someone's likelihood of having a more challenging life and some you know in ways of going to college and ways of getting a job and all that kind of stuff that they see that and they say well that's it so that's that's actually I've gotten into uh, that's probably the most dangerous I've ever felt during the last several years of trying to talk to white people about racism is with people that have grown up poor and white. Mm. But what I'm able, because they get angry, they're like, I don't have privilege, how dare you? But if you are white and poor, you still have an opportunity to turn on the television and see a police officer or a doctor or a teacher or an actress, actor that looks like Mm -hmm. you. When you turn on any movie from the 80s, they're all white. I mean, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I had not seen that in so many years, and I turned it on, and I went, "Oh no!" <laughs> I, and you got to think about like <sighs> how that affected my friends that were that age, growing up, and never turning on the television and seeing someone that looked like them, or never right. going to school and having a teacher that looked like them, or a piano teacher, or you know, anything, a coach. Everyone was white. Right and how do you how do you excel how do you see yourself in a position like that um, if it's if it's not represented for you and that that's been people have come down i mean after they um, take a minute but they'll come often they can see that mm. that piece of white privilege white privilege is not economic privilege mm-hmm. economic privilege is a secondary piece that i So that's where my life, I was economically and racially privileged. Um, And it took me a long time to realize that I didn't really struggle. I didn't struggle and compared to everybody else. And because I didn't struggle, I I need to fight now. Because I have the means, because I have the education, because I got all these things given to me, I need to use them to level the playing field and to bring people up because... I didn't deserve this. I'm not clandestined to be this way. It's dumb luck, and it's just the way I was born, like everybody else
0: right and you have taken the initiative to do something to heal the imbalance, and that's that's really that's really powerful and, and using your white privilege for good to bring awareness to these things is, is huge. And, um, you know, uh, fortunate, fortunately this day in age, seeing more white women beginning to, uh, question what they've been taught to believe. Mm, mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and and also the shiny veneer of whiteness has now started to crack in ways yeah. where there's holes now big holes in the whiteness mm, mm-hmm. because the narrative is so predictable I'm a good person. Mm. You don't know me. Mm. Lists credentials, mm-hmm. personal attacks. Uh y- I've got a black yeah, friend. Yeah, I've got a black friend. Um you know the mm-hmm. the conversation goes from you don't know me to okay sweetie, I had a woman today call me boo oh. and I'm like Mm-mm. uh what? Oh. So, of course I posted Perhaps maybe this video might help you understand how offensive uh, and presumptuous that was, you know. And then of course the next so, comment is full, uh, full-blown uh, personal attacks with names and everything like that. And um, so it's it's almost like the predictability of the fragility is uh, is becoming textbook.
1: It is, which is allowing me included to know how to combat it. Right. So that's Um, my next question. And to see it in my own self. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's my
0: next question is, um, what are tools that you have come across? Because this is something that you're in, and as a white woman, um, knowing effective tools for BIPOC to use with with white women
1: that just cuts right through that that call me <laughs> let me let me handle it i'll take care of it no i'm just <laughs> like, kidding don't even i'm not give them my phone number <laughs> yes give them my phone number directly my email whatever it is because that's what my friend said tanya that's what my friend said she said i'm tired right. i don't want to fight you anymore not me personally right, right. right but but like mm-hmm. white women she said i don't want to fight you anymore i've done it it's your turn to fight your people mm-hmm. and i'm like you know what in that conversation nobody had ever directly spoken to me personally that way and i i've heard you know i've 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 grouped myself i understand i'm I, i'm get i'm picking up what everybody's putting down but um i'm really i'm trying to uh see that i, I think the what would you say i mean it's <laughs> right i mean it is a difficult i don't you know? i don't know i mean because there mm-hmm. are
0: you know, one of the one of the tools that I've been doing is to not respond and stay on topic of, um, you know, having them unpack their harm. So if I'm in conversation with somebody and I see that the conversation begins to derail or they're centering themselves and, and I have I had a, a, a woman who um because of this of a conversation um she went out of her way to try to ruin my life because yeah. i would not uh uh i i would not submit to her harm like a good little brown girl should you know what i'm saying uh, and um uh-huh. and she has gone out of her way and above and beyond Uh, some egregious uh, methods to uh, try to denigrate anything uh, that I do professionally. And, um, you know, one of the things that I said to her was, uh, you know, I see that you're centering yourself in the conversation right now, and I'd appreciate it if um, you would Google how to not center myself in the conversation you know, and but it, it's like the checklist. You know, it's the centering, <laughs> the weaponizing disease, illness, condition. It's you know, it's it, it's, and then when when they don't get their way, when the white woman doesn't get their way, it's uh, I'm I'm going to attack your character to such a depth of of uh, uh, of egregious offense. That uh, you know, I will tear you down. It's like um, they can't kill us, but they can. They can mm. try to do everything that they can to block uh, progress or livelihood. Which
1: so here's what I have had to tell white mm. women and and men as much as possible, bringing people up allowing other people to have success and recognizing in ourselves that the reason I'm able to do this podcast, the reason I'm able to do anything uh, that I got any job, um, that, that race, it was, not all the reason I would hope, but it certainly was a big part of it. And you have to see that. And you have to say, it's not the system I created. This is what we, this is why I think that Courtney in common, um, is the right way to go for me because I'm not blaming white people for the way the system was set up. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying anybody I'm not saying you are. But I didn't create this system. But if I if I see it now Mm -hmm. and I don't do what I can to dismantle Mm -hmm. it, no matter how long it took, I gotta get rid of the guilt. Mm -hmm. I got white guilt keeps you from being active. If you feel guilty about how things are are You are going to shield yourself from any more pain and you're going to say, I can't do it. So I'm not blaming the white people that I talk to because that doesn't get me anywhere with them. That If I say it's your fault, white man, like my friend, Mm -hmm. you know, if I your fault, friend, because you're a white guy in a small Southern town and it's not, and and he hasn't ever thought about it at that level, he's immediately going to become defensive, and he's not going to listen to anything else I have to say. But if I say, Hey, friend, I look like you. I was in this world, and I didn't see it either. So what can you and I do? Now that we know this, now that we see the truth, Mm -hmm. because I've heard... um, and, and It's about just... Taking away the blame so that they can't use that as a crutch to not look farther into the problem blame I blame think, is huge, yeah because that's
0: blame because is huge. that's one of the um, that's one of the things that white people use against uh, black people uh, latino people, Native American people in this country is uh, victim blaming mm-hmm. well if you weren't such a victim you blame everybody but you take responsibility for yourself those kinds of things are i mean they come up in conversation out of left field it's like whoa whoa dude like who's blaming what we're just talking about unpacking white privilege where did the victim come into this you know where did the you know all of a sudden he's like you you just want to be a victim wait no wait what
1: nobody wants (laughs) to be a
0: victim sir nobody wants to be a victim i mean like that kind of that kind of pushback from white people like like what could be a good um succinct shutdown for that like because that's something that I'll post articles and stuff, but I know that people that are in that mind space don't care to do anything outside of their own bias, but argue and keep uh, marginalized people in their place, so to say. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for the everyday racism that BIPOC experience, How can we communicate with white people in a way that protects us, that um, is a modern way of facing the the everyday racism that we experience? Because we're not quiet anymore. We're not taking it. We're not taking it anymore. And more and more white people are starting to realize that and have almost become emboldened by it, like they challenge BIPOC to um, almost like a a dueling match of wills, so to say, over who has the power in the room. And uh, what do you think would be an equalizer, I guess, more than anything, uh, to level that conversation so that it just shuts the whole room up. Is there anything that you've experienced uh, working in this field that really grips white people, when said by somebody um, of color, to shut down that conversation? Right, it's a big one, huh?
1: (laughs) It is a big one. That
0: concludes part one of this two-part series with Courtney Jessup Nichols decolonizing the white woman mind. Looking forward to bringing you part two next week. Stay tuned, GDI.